This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Scripture reading for today is Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 through 22. It can be found on page 619 of your pew Bibles. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see... They all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel." Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you a majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, 
and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and it's time I will hasten it. Good morning. Let's pray. God, we receive your word this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. God, we open our hearts to receive from your word this morning all that you have for us. Lord, would you, in your grace and by your spirit, grant us a spirit of revelation? God, God, would you give us grace upon the hearing of the word this morning? That our hearts would be attuned to all that you have for us. God, I ask this morning as we look at this word together, you would allow us to be shaped, to be formed, to be transformed even today in how we live before you. God, would you burn the vision of what is to come into the eyes of our hearts this morning? God, that we would be shaped to live in light of what is certain, what is true, what is coming, what you are working all things to accomplish. God, would you grant us that kind of grace this morning? In your name, we ask. Amen. So, you and I, we are profoundly shaped by what we, what vision we have or what we believe to be true about the future. Possibly more than anything else in our lives. What we believe is to come shapes who we are today. Now, you might not have a hard time grabbing onto this. Sometimes we think what, we ha- what has happened to us in the past or the circumstances of our present are the most important things about us. But I want to offer to you that the way that you and I are designed, one of the most important things about who we are is what we believe to be true about what is to come, about our future. There's a psychologist of the early 1900s, an Austrian-born man named Viktor Frankl, who basically came up with a theory that man was not driven by what people before had argued, like a will to survive or a will to power. He argued for what he called a will to meaning. He says that a future-oriented understanding of searching for meaning and fulfilling meaning in our lives is the primary motivational force for people. Now, what you might not know about Viktor Frankl is he lived, he was a Jewish man who lived through the Holocaust, spent time in a concentration camp, and what he came out of this experience believing was that humans can endure unbelievable hardship if there is something in front of them that helps them to make sense of what they're walking through. 
Throughout the scriptures, at times we are given a glimpse of the final reality of God's purposes. These portraits, portraits are intended to shape what we believe to be true about God, about his purposes, about his plans. They call us to align ourselves with a different reality than the one that we presently experience as we walk through the world. As we've talked about over the last several weeks, this section of Isaiah, chapters 56 to 66, are a word given to a community that is waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. The waiting period provides context for all of these tensions to emerge, tensions inside the heart as we are prone to despair and discouragement and how we make sense of the difficulties of waiting. They also produce tensions of external realities, oppression and difficulty pressing down upon us. Into these situations, the Lord proclaims how he's going to bring forth his salvation as well as giving pictures of the beautiful and vivid uh, reality of the world as it will be when he acts to bring the lasting transformation that he has promised. These portraits are meant to saturate our imaginations. They're to burn into the retina of the eyes of our heart and fill our whole being with light and with longing. These portraits are meant to awaken hope in us and orient us in new and profound ways in the midst of our present situation. There's a German theologian named Jürgen Moltmann who wrote a book called The Theology of Hope and in it he argues that the promises of God contain within them the hidden future that announces itself and exerts its influence on us in the present. What he says is the promises of God speak out to us. They show us what is now hidden to us in reality of being able to see, but they present a future that is certain in God's economy. And that reality presses down upon us in the present to make sense of our lives and awaken and engender hope within us. All throughout Isaiah, and we see throughout the whole of Scripture, much of the picture of God's promises have to do with a city. At the forefront of his purposes are the reality of a place where his people will dwell. It's a common reality of prophetic literature that the city is spoken to as a personification of the people who will dwell within it. Isaiah has been remarkably concerned throughout his whole prophecy with what you could call the transformation of Zion. At the beginning of the book, we see this city is perverse and sinful, walking in absolute disobedience and destruction. In Isaiah 1, 21, almost from the beginning of the prophecy, Isaiah talks about the faithful city that had become a whore. She who was full of justice, now righteousness had once lodged in her, but now murderers did. From the jump, he is talking about this program that God is going to bring salvation and transformation to Zion. However, God has been at work to bring correction and discipline all throughout the book through judgments, and he's promised that he would act to bring salvation and deliverance through a servant. Now, we see that it's not only that he will provide salvation by forgiving sins, 
but he will work to restore and fully redeem, bringing absolute transformation to God's people. Zion is the picture of what God is doing to bring redemption and restoration. This chapter brings us to the final act of God's redemptive purposes, portraying a picture of a fully renewed and a fully restored city. What this does is fill our hearts with hope and longing and helps us to live today in light of the day that is to come. So today my desire is to emphasize in a particular way the place of such pictures in the scripture. What do they tell us about the future? How are we to pursue this? And what response is meant to be provoked within us? To do that, we're gonna look at the text briefly. I'll, I'll paint an overview of the text itself. And then we'll spend most of our time looking at what the response to such passages ought to be in our lives. As we, in many ways, like the initial hearers, live waiting for the fullness of God's promise to come to pass. So the text itself, you could call, again, Isaiah 60, the transformation of Zion. It could be the header of the text itself. With the opening words of the passage, we're escorted again into a new terrain within the book. Much of what has come to this point, beginning in 56, has been a bleak look at how the people of God were unable to embody his ways in the world and unable to live in right standing with him. Throughout the last several chapters, the darkness of sin, the power and its effects have weighed heavy on the hearer, indicting each and every one of us before a just and holy God. Yet in the place of absolute and utter hopelessness, God was not willing to leave his people and his world within the desperate clutches of sin and its power. Into this hopeless and dark situation, the Lord himself acted taking on the character of a conquering warrior, clothing himself with zeal and with righteousness, riding out against sin to judge its effects in the world and provide redemption for those who will turn from transgression. So look back up. I just want to set the tone of this, of this passage into Isaiah 59 in verse 16. We saw this last week, but into the darkness of this situation, God promised that he would act. We see here, he proclaims that then his own arm brought salvation for him. His righteousness upheld him. He put on a righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. He goes on to say that a redeemer will come to Zion, verse 20, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So now with an abrupt change of focus and voice, the prophet turns to the personified city of God, Zion herself, and begins to exhort her. The overview of what is happening in this text is very simple. There are three main stanzas in the poem. And rather than walk through this line on line and attempt to give an interpretation to each of these statements, my desire is to give us a broad overview of the movements of the text and invite us to see what themes they communicate to us. And as we jump into this, I want to just make this side note. We have to remember that this portrait is given to a particular people in a particular cultural moment. 
One of the downfalls of much of contemporary Western evangelical interpretation of biblical prophecy can be an overemphasis of trying to understand what the literal fulfillment of the text is, right? So we're going to try to figure out what the ships of Tarshish represents or what, where are the rams of Nabioth coming from, right? Like we're not going to press down into that this morning. My hope for us, what the text is meant to do for its initial hearers and for us as well, is to paint a picture of a day when God's work is so comprehensive, when his work of transformation has reached its final ultimate state that it far surpasses what we might be able to think or imagine in our own moment. That's what the essence of what we're getting at here is. So we're not going to go and try to pick out what each of these things represents, but rather the portrait is to hit you and make you think of a day when uh, more than you could ask or more than you could imagine is true when God has fully and finally brought redemption and salvation to his people. So the text, there are three stanzas. The first stanza is verses one to nine. And in this, the prophet begins with an exhortation to stand up and to brighten the face. That's what arise and shine means. Stand up and let your countenance be bright. This is not what we will see in the New Testament when we think about shining before people as doing good works or practicing righteousness. This is about no longer having a sullen and sorrowful countenance. This is in the place of crushedness that we have seen from the people of God throughout this. They've been oppressed and pressed down by God's judgments and by the nations of the earth. They've been brought low and and brought to a place of despair and hopelessness. And into that context, God exhorts them, stand up and let your face be bright again. Stand up and let your face be brightened. This is not the first time that the hearers of Isaiah have been exhorted to live in light of what God is about to do. We saw this in chapter 52 when he calls to them to awake, to awake, to put on strength and, and clothe themselves in the salvation of what God is doing. In chapter 54, he speaks to uh, the people as a barren woman and tells them to begin to sing and expand their tent pegs and enlarge in their space because of what God is going to do. And yet again, into a moment of hopelessness and despair, he says, stand up. Let your face be bright. No longer wallow in the pity and the realities of what seem to be hopeless to you. Stand up and let your countenance be bright. Now we see this is a particular way of responding and a particular way of acting that is rooted in the truth of what God is doing, right? Look at the rest of verse one, arise, shine, why? The word for is really important here. For your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 
Darkness, behold, darkness will cover the earth and thick darkness the people, but the Lord himself will arise on you and his glory will be seen upon you. And what we get through the rest of this picture is the nations of the earth being drawn to the light of God that is reflected upon the city of God. We see the nations of the earth uh, being drawn out of darkness, out of this place of hopelessness, out of this place of despair and, and confusion into a place where God's light is shining upon them. The image in these verses is of the city, Zion, being bathed in the light of God in such a remarkable way that all the people who were in darkness, the nations of the earth, are drawn to come up to her. Notice the themes of light and dark. We've seen these in the last several weeks. All throughout this this section, these themes of light and dark have been playing, where the people are sitting in darkness, and they're groping in darkness, and they're, they're longing for light to break in. And now God says, as certain as the dawn, there will be a day when the light of God rises upon you. This is a glorious picture that we see of the wealth, the glory, and the power of the nations coming into Israel. That's what we see in the first nine verses. The light of God rising upon the city of God and his people that draws the nations of the earth to him. Now again, this is a picture that's meant to, within their context, awaken a a, a reality of what is beyond their wildest imagination. I was trying to think of like what we could compare it to and I had two really silly images come to my mind. For those of you that were uh, raised or kids through the 90s, I thought of like Scrooge McDuck, right? Like swimming in piles of gold, right? Like it would be similar to saying there will be a day that happens when you're gonna be jumping off the diving board into the, the pool of gold coins that you find yourself in. Or it could be like maybe moving from West Philadelphia to Bel Air, right? Something like that, right? Saturating our imaginations with this transformation from poverty and strickenness to absolute wealth where the nations who had oppressed and kept you down and enslaved you for so long are now bringing boatloads of their wealth to you so that they can worship your God and they bring all of their glory and all of their honor and all of their wealth no longer oppressed and poor, now exalted and given riches. So that's the first stanza. The second stanza is verses 10 to 16. What we see here is a, a slight adaptation of the first. Now that the nations are coming to bring their wealth to them, not only are they going to receive the cultural artifacts and the wealth and the resources and the glory of the nations, but the nations themselves will serve the people of God. 
They, this is a great reversal where the people of God, the, the children of Israel who would have been hearing this have been oppressed and pressed down and enlisted for so long in the service of the nations. And God is saying there's coming a day where you will no longer be in that place, but the nations will come to serve your God in your city. That's what's happening here. We get this beautiful picture of the nations coming and serving the living God in his city. We see that all will bow in reverence to the Lord of Zion, either in humble submission to his ways or in subjugation to him. Even look at verse 12. You have this uh, juxtaposition of the nations that come willingly in service and the nations who will not come, what is in store for them. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you will perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. You see now the ones who had afflicted come to serve. The ones who had oppressed are now coming to serve God and his people in his city. And then what we get in the last stanza from verses 17 to 22 is this remarkable picture of complete and absolute transformation. God had promised that a redeemer would come to Zion. And the idea of redemption is really important in this section because redemption has more to do with transformation than simply forgiveness, right? There's a a need for forgiveness. The, The penalty for sin needs to be paid for. But what God is talking about here is that in every place where there was brokenness and destruction and death, He will bring absolute redemption and transformation. And what we see in verses 17 to 22 is remarkable. I just want to highlight them quickly for you. First, we see that in the city, good building materials will be transformed to the choicest building materials. So instead of bronze, there will be gold. Instead of iron, there will be silver. Instead of wood, there will be bronze. Instead of stones, there will be iron. So he's saying where there was decent building materials, there will be the choicest of building materials. The city itself will be embodied with the choicest realities that that God has created. We see that overseers and taskmasters will be transformed to righteousness and peace. Look at this in the latter part of verse 17. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Now this is really important in to a nation whose national identity comes out of a, a, a history where God's biggest form of deliverance was delivering them from slavery. Right? They had known overseers. They had known taskmasters. And God says there will be a, such a moment of transformation and redemption that your taskmaster will be peace. Your overseer will be righteousness. The one that lords over you will be righteousness and peace. What a remarkable picture of transformation. 
We see that violence and strife will be transformed into peace and salvation. Violence will be no more, verse 18. And devastation or destruction within your borders. You will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. He says where there once was violence, destruction, oppression, no longer. Your gates themselves will be praised. The very walls around you will be salvation. The light of the city will be transformed from the sun and the moon to the glory of God. We see in verses 19 and 20, the sun will be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun will no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning will be ended. Even the light system will be changed. He says, you don't even need the sun or the moon anymore because the glory and the radiance of the living God in your midst will be so abundant, the sun and moon will be like nothing. The people will be transformed. Look at verse 21. Your people, Zion, shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. These people who we have seen again and again and again could not keep righteousness, could not pursue justice, who had gone in the way of unrighteousness and death and sin. God says, when this thing is all done, every one of them will be righteous. Every one of your people will be righteous. And then look at the last thing that's transformed. The smallest will be transformed into the greatest. The least, verse 22, shall become a clan and the smallest one, a mighty nation. God says that transformation will be so remarkable. The reversal that is about to come is going to be so comprehensive that the smallest one will be the greatest. The one that is least will have a clan to themselves. Essentially, what he is getting at is what Jesus will pick up as he teaches and says, the servant will be the greatest. The one who is the least, the one who goes the lowest, the one who uh, takes up his cross and follows me will be great forever. We see this remarkable transformation. Now, the purpose of this chapter is to demonstrate to us absolute, perfect, and eternal transformation at the hand of the Lord. Where there once was darkness, there's light. Where there was destructions and ruins, there's stable and lasting structures. Where there was poverty and oppression, there are now riches and exaltation. Where the people of God had been the tail, they are now at the head of the nations. All of this is to be done at the hand of the God of Israel, bringing everlasting joy, peace, and righteousness. Texts like this invite us to a type of response. And I want to look at how we ought to, or what kind of response should be elicited in our heart as we hear and engage with this kind of text. They're meant to orient us toward another age and how the fulfillment of God's purposes brings 
patient endurance, hope, and greater meaning to our lives today. We have to give ourselves over to filling our vision with the future reality of God's purposes. The only way we can become any earthly good is to orient our minds, our affections, and our desires on what is to come. One of the remarkable realities of the new covenant is that the power and the reality of these types of promises has broken into the world through the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and through the sending of his spirit upon the church. We see through the New Testament that these realities have crashed into this age. They have broken into this world in the person of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, and in the resurrection of Jesus. And now through the sending of his spirit to his people, these promises have crashed into the world. Yet we don't see them in their fullness. We must, through the eyes of faith, set our minds on things unseen, precisely in order to grow in patient endurance, faithfulness, steadfastness, and grace in the midst of the difficulties of this life. I've said it a lot over the last several weeks, but we find ourselves in a very similar situation to the hearers of this text. They were exiles who were waiting for the day when God would bring fulfillment to his promises. And like I've said again and again, the waiting period creates so many points of tension for us, inside of us and outside of us. And we need words like this, Isaiah 60, to fill the eyes of our hearts and to shape our imaginations so we might bank our lives on the truth of what God has promised that we might have patient endurance and faithfulness and hope in the midst of this life. So how do we do this? How do we do this in our lives? I think there are three ways I want to talk to us about this morning that I I hope that we would respond to a text like this. How do we take a portrait of what God has said is on the far horizon for us? And one thing I want us to recognize, the dawn of this kind of day, though it seems like it will tarry forever, though it seems far off or it seems cloudy or uncertain, when that day dawns, the reality of these kind of truths will far surpass in uh, endurance and length the short time of trial and tribulation as we walk in exile in this world. That, that reality has to burn onto us, right? This is eternity we're talking about. This is eternity. What is true here will be true about you and me for way longer than this blip of 70, maybe 80 years that we get waiting for it. So let's just remember that as we look at how we can respond. The first thing that I think we texts like this do for us is invite us to spend time meditating on eternity for the purpose of reorienting our lives 
today. Where I want to go with this is Matthew chapter 13. You can turn there if you'd like. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a series of parables outlining the nature of how God was fulfilling his promises. The promises of establishing his kingdom in the world. And many of these parables teach us that the kingdom has come in the person and the work of Jesus, yet will only be perceived by faith, experienced in hiddenness and smallness as we see according to our natural perception. Yet, this reality is immeasurably glorious and accomplishing everything God intends it to. Two of the parables that I want to highlight this morning portray for us a life that is devoted to the majesty and the beauty of Jesus and his kingdom and is willing to give away everything in order to pursue it. Look with me at verse 44. Jesus said this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells everything he has to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold everything he had and bought it. These parables demonstrate the surpassing riches of Jesus' majesty, the surpassing glory of what is to come in eternity as the kingdom of God breaks in and is established on the earth. They show us that seeking out the treasure of the kingdom costs us everything and is worth giving up everything to, to find. Yet many do not ever see or find the treasure. They simply walk through life as if passing over an empty field. To find the treasure, we have to be intentional to search out God's beauty, what he's promised about our eternity with him, about the value of his kingdom and its worth all the days of our life. We must spend time and energy seeking out the treasure of God's kingdom. The truths of Isaiah 60 will reorient our hearts and our minds in the midst of this world. Let me just give you a couple places where your your mind and heart could be reoriented and shaped if you gave yourself to meditating on this. The first thing is like an eternal view of significance. What is significant? What is significant about your life? What is significant, right? Passages like this, passages that portray God's future that is sure and certain, they reorient our understanding of what matters. What matters? The things in our lives that we spend so much time trying to fill up with significance and meaning, oftentimes when we hold them up to the light of what God says is significant and will last forever, they pale in comparison. Scriptures like this invite us to have a reorientation of what matters, what is significant. And here's, here's something I don't know if you think about very often. Every one of us is hardwired to long for significance. Every one of us. We want what we give our lives to, to matter. 
We want the things we put our hands to, to matter. That was put into you by God. You can't repent for it. You can't try to uh, clean that part of yourself up. You can't uh, reorient that part of yourself. You are, are hardwired to long for the things you give your life to, to have significance. The problem is we're often filled with imagination of what is significant related to things that are going to pass away. So take scriptures like this and meditate on what God calls eternal, what God calls substantial, what God calls lasting and of value so that we can orient our lives by his grace around what he calls significant. Another thing that this could do is slightly different, but, but uh, in a similar vein, is give us an eternal view of greatness. Greatness of what God calls great. Again, I think that's another thing that's hardwired in each one of us. Every one of us. We actually want to be great. Now, we can pursue that in really destructive and perverse ways. But we all long for that. And what we see when we meditate on passages like this is God calls certain things great and will uh, bring real, lasting reward and value to lives in eternity. There is reality to that. This gives us an eternal view of wealth. You could look at what is lasting and substantive there. It gives us an eternal view of suffering. Helps us reorient trials and tribulations and suffering. This is what we see Paul do all over the place in the New Testament, particularly in 2 Corinthians 4 where he talks about the eternal weight of glory that is being stored up makes momentary and light afflictions. Takes what's true about this life that feels so heavy or so big and it right-sizes it and reorients it. Paul speaks of this reality that we have to give our lives to meditating on things unseen. Just write down Colossians 3, verse 2, where he says, set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. He does the same thing at the end of 2 Corinthians 4, when he says, we look to things that are, we do not look to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The author of Hebrews lays this out as well and ties the life of faith through exile, uh, through, through um, the exile of our life to looking for a city. He says in chapter 11, speaking of all those who came before, they died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them from afar, acknowledging that they're strangers and exiles on the earth, but as it is, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he's prepared a city for them. He says, the life of faith is always oriented toward God and his purposes on the far horizon. 
That is the only way to be sustained and endure in the midst of the sojourn and the exile of this life. In the midst of the hardships, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the mistreatment, in the midst of the opposition, in the midst of the temptations towards despair and doubt and hopelessness. The only way is to look for and understand that God has prepared a city where he will dwell with us forever. That is our hope. God is preparing a place for his people to dwell. And throughout Isaiah's prophecy, we've seen front and center the transformation of this city. Not only the city itself, but all of the people who will dwell there. God has done whatever it takes to bring glory to his name and to prepare a people and a place for them to dwell with him. So spend time meditating on this. Let it run over in your mind again and again and again. Just muse on it. Renew your mind that way. The second thing that I want us to see, one of the ways we can respond, not just through meditating or filling our minds with it, but actually seeking to live and make choices in light of that reality. That's actually what it means to renew your mind. Renew your mind doesn't just mean uh, get the right information. It means when you are pressed, when you are found in the place of pressing, what narrative do you believe to be true? Because how you respond to those circumstances will give real evidence to what you actually believe. You find when you're mistreated, when you're opposed, when you're uh, spoken ill of, when you find yourself overlooked, when somebody gets the thing you wanted and you find yourself again waiting, you find it when there's relational tension or you find that the thing that you hoped would happen didn't happen again. In those places, what you really believe comes out. And to renew your mind is to take the things that are true about God, his word, his promises, his future, and to, as hard as it is in that moment, behave in that way. Respond in that way. Turn your actions and your life in that way. It is the opening exhortation of this passage. It serves as an outcome or a response for the whole of what Isaiah portrays here. This is what it means to rise and shine. A rising and shining has to do, like I said earlier, with living in light of what is already true of us because of the word of God. This was a people toppled and distraught, living in what appeared to be hopeless despondency. God commanded them to stand up and let their countenance be brightened not to wallow in their contrition or sulk around in their darkness. Rather, they were to stand up and let their faces be joyful. This is in line with what it means to renew your mind. Not an outward performance. This isn't happy, clappy, everything's good, right? That's not what this means. This happens in places where no one's watching. When you feel those realities pressed down upon you, Do you respond going, the God of all creation sits enthroned over everything and orchestrates my life 
in order to bring forth love from my heart. He is good. He is right. Therefore, I will stand up even in places where I feel crushed down. I will stand up before him and I will let my face be brightened in his presence. Not because my circumstances have changed one ounce, but because I know if the God who sits on the throne is good and he is toward me, then this moment can only be for my good. And for me to wallow around in despondency or in the dark cloud of emotion of despair and hopelessness is nothing more than disbelief and disobedience. So what would it look like for you in your life, in the places where you find yourself wrestling through those realities to start filling your mind with things above and in that place, take the truth of the word of God and say, this is what's on the horizon. So I'm going to arise and I'm going to be bright of countenance because this is certain. This is guaranteed. And though the weeping may last for a night, there will be a day, we saw here, verse 20, that the days of mourning will be ended. And the light of God will shine upon his people forever. The last thing that I think we are called to do in the midst of this, passages like this invite us, I think, to be sober, to be alert, to be watchful. Look with me at the very end of verse 22 in this chapter. We see what every word of this hinges on. All of our certainty, all of our hope, all of our reorienting of our lives toward these realities has to be rooted in these words. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. You see what this says? It means that he banks his entire name on this. It's going to happen because he is sovereign, he is holy, he is eternal. Though it may tarry for a moment, surely its fulfillment will hasten one day. And we, like servants who wait for a master who has gone away, must be watchful. We must be ready. We must be awake as we watch for the day that he will bring all this to pass. I was floored this week as I prepared for this in one of the commentaries I read as he highlighted in this verse the reality of preparedness related to the sudden breaking in of God's work that he will surely hasten this. I want you to hear this and then we're gonna pray together and then we'll come to the table. But hear this. Although it may take a long time for all things to be ready, nevertheless, when they are ready, God will suddenly bring it to pass. This is the way it was with his first coming. It seemed the Messiah would never come. But when the time was right, he was suddenly present. And those who were not prepared had no time to get prepared. So it will be at the consummation of all things. Suddenly, the sun will leap over the horizon and God's everlasting day will be here. In the meantime, the 
task of the people of God is to draw on all his resource to reflect to the world as much of his light as he now makes available to us. Amen. Would you stand with me? just present ourselves before the Lord this morning. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you have precious promises that are sure and certain. God, thank you that there is a day coming that will, when you will bring full and final restoration and transformation to everything. God, I ask this morning, even in this room right now, that you would fill the eyes of our heart with the burning, blazing glory of that day. God, would you resize our lives, resize our relationships, resize our pursuits, resize our disappointments, resize our hardships. I ask by making clear to us the reality that you will make all things new. And we will spend eternity in a place where destruction is turned to fruitfulness, in a place where hardship is turned to peace, in a place where um, contrition and lowliness is turned into joy. Mourning is turned to gladness. God, would you come now and fill our hearts with hope? Would you help us respond this morning? Would you help us to believe and to obey? We have this hope because we can look back as well. We have an anchor, an anchor that has been demonstrated in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He purchased salvation. He accomplished all of God's promises. And as we wait, we get to come and remember to celebrate, to joy and glory in the reality that God has accomplished his purposes in Christ Jesus and will again fulfill all things. So as we come to the table this morning, if your faith is in Jesus, if you look to him and him alone, I wanna invite you to come and take of this meal. The way we take uh, communion here is we dip a, or rip a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. Uh, we have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers in the front, middle, and up in the balconies. Single serve that's gluten-free to my right. If you find yourself in the room and you're, you're not a Christian, if you don't have hope that there's one day when he will come and make all things new or bring eternal transformation, 
and you find that in and through Jesus, I wanna ask that you not come and take this meal with us this morning. This meal is a remembrance meal. It is a meal where we look with eyes of faith to the life, the death of Jesus Christ. If that's not your hope, don't come take this meal. We would rather you take Jesus this morning. We have prayers in the seat back in front of you that would help you navigate what it might look like to pray to God this morning but don't come take this meal. But for those of you who are receiving servers, you're welcome to come forward. We'll spend this time responding in this way. We'll also have prayer ministers throughout the, the sanctuary. If you're feeling just led um, this morning, asking God to even help resize or reorient your life in accordance with his truth. If you long to experience more of his nearness, uh, we have prayer ministers that would love to pray with and for you. Don't leave this morning without that. Um, so come when you're ready and partake the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus.